As we come now to the Word of God, if you have a Bible and you'd like to read along with me, uh, please turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 4. We'll be this morning in Exodus chapter 4. The full text uh, this morning is also printed in your bulletin. If you were here last week, you know we read a chapter and a half. Uh, This morning we have just four verses. Um, So we're in Exodus chapter 4. And before we pray, or before we read, let's uh, pray. Our Lord God, would you help us now to listen here with willing and believing hearts. Help us to be eager to hear your word. Uh, Would you set aside any resistance that's within us, either resistance from circumstances or, or discomfort or even from sin within us? Lord, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Guide us, we pray, by your spirit We trust you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Exodus in chapter 4. I'll begin here in verse 17 and just take up these uh, four verses. Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. And take in your hands this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. This is the word of God. Now, before we dig into this text, let me give you just a brief note about the process that brought us here this morning. We are reading through in these uh, previous weeks and months these first chapters of Exodus. And so as a preacher, before I even uh, give the first sermon on Exodus, so way back before even January, I sit with the pages of these chapters and I read them. I I read them and read them and read them. I read over the chapters again and again. I just sit with them. And then I begin to block out the sections of text into a general schedule, what I think uh, it will look like Sunday by Sunday. And, and, uh, and, And so generally, then I have a schedule, a guess at how long this might take, but I don't always stick to the schedule that I've blocked out. In fact, the schedule uh, said this morning that I would be preaching on the next section of text, uh, this very perplexing uh, event with Moses' wife. You can read ahead if you want. That's for next week. Uh, But the schedule can change because uh, circumstances sometimes change things. We've seen that in, a, in the past few weeks when we had our, our home worship. Circumstances can change it. But also, my understanding of the text 
can change. So as I begin to dig deeper in my study and prayer, sometimes I begin to see things that I had never seen in the text before. And so I have to make changes. Sometimes one sermon becomes uh, two sermons and pops out into uh, multiple ones. That's the case here. This means that I do not come here with an idea already in my head about what I'm going to preach, and then I try to find a text to fit that idea. If that was all we do, we try to find text to fit our own ideas, that is dangerous. If that is all I do, I will make the Bible fit anything I want it to fit. I can warp the words of God to nonsense that does not actually fit what he says. And if I do that, we begin to worship self-made gods. We don't want that. And so instead, we come to the text with our head bowed, ready to listen and to hear what God has spoken with his spirit as our guide. The reason why I mention all of this uh, as as sort of a prelude here is because we all, all of us, need to hear God's word this way. I had a mentor in college who said to me once, college students don't really know what you need. They think they do, but they don't. And of course that felt very insulting Uh, until he started to laugh and he said, well, you know, this is really true of all of us. We think we know what we need, but we don't. And I think he's right. The Bible describes our own hearts as desperately sick and who can understand it? Even the heart of the Christian, a heart that has been cleansed and, and continues to be transformed by the grace of Jesus, a heart that is, uh, it, that is changed by the Lord, is still prone to sin, still prone to wonder. And so apart from the word of God, we don't really know what we need on our own. That's true of me too. I don't know what this, what this past month has stirred in your heart. Maybe you've felt afraid, angry, lonely. Perhaps you felt, you know, just done with all of this. And in light of all of these things, we might think we know what we need here. But this morning, we come to God's word with bowed heads, trying to just listen with God's help. And we trust that the Lord will speak what we actually need. So all that said, as I tried to listen here to what the author has told us in these words, I noticed as I read and read and read a detail in this text that I very nearly just passed by. 
But that detail is actually a very important part of the Exodus story. The detail that we'll be looking at here is the staff. The staff of Moses. If you were here with us last week, and even if you uh, weren't, I'll summarize briefly, you'll know that the, the last chapter and a half of Exodus is the entire account of the burning bush. And in this account, the Lord is calling Moses, his servant, to go to Egypt to bring Israel out of slavery. It's a very powerful and dramatic account in, in this burning uh, bush. It's a major pivot point of history. And then we see in this text right after that Moses now finally obeys. He, he does what the Lord has asked. He packs up his family and he goes back to Egypt. So the Lord has done what he intended to do at the bush. But the conversation at the burning bush ends with some very unexpected words. They feel in some way like, like a, a, a P.S., <laughs> like something that's just tacked on at the end of a letter. It's, it's almost a by the way. It's the, the first verse of the section we read, verse, seven, uh, verse 17. Oh, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. In other words, <laughs> Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure you don't forget your stick. I mean, Moses had been told in this event to take off his sandals because he is standing on the holy ground in front of a holy God, but the Lord doesn't seem concerned that he'd forget to take his sandals. But for some reason, the staff of Moses here is specially mentioned. So the question for us this morning is, why? Why is the staff important here? And what is the Lord saying to us in it? Before we can unpack the significance of the staff, we need to take just a few minutes here to consider what we're looking at here. What is the object? What is this staff that we're looking at here? We might translate this same Hebrew words differently depending on the context, depending on who is using it and, and what it's being used for, this particular rod. So if it were in the hand of a king, we would call this thing a scepter. It's a rod that he would use to rule. If it were in the hand of a soldier, we would call this rod and arrow, something he uses to fight. If it were in the hand of a parent, we might call it a switch. Some of us might be too familiar with that, something used to be disciplined by. Or if it's in the hand of a farmer, I learned a new word this week, and we might call it a flail or a thresher, something that you would use to, to beat and to separate the seed. Or, if this thing were in the hand of a wizard, it would be similar to something we would now call a wand, something you would use to do magic. And by the way, this is not just the stuff of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. There are real wizards here. We'll meet them soon. They're called magicians, and they'll show up with their own staves in chapter 7 of Exodus. But Moses is none of these things, at least not in the context here. When Moses stumbles upon the burning bush, 
uh, in, in the beginning of chapter 3 and here now in this text. He is in the middle of keeping his flock. Moses, who used to be the prince of Egypt, is now a shepherd in Midian. So the object that's in his hand, what is here translated staff, is what we might call a crook, a shepherd's crook. It probably didn't have, you know, the, the famous, you know, hook around the top on the tip. They might have been there, we don't know. Uh, but it was some sort of long stick specifically for keeping sheep. And we're familiar with these sorts of things, even if you don't keep sheep. I know I don't, uh, because Christmas, you know, there's the shepherds wandering around and kids that are holding some sort of big stick. Or more uh, uh, familiar to us in some ways is Psalm 23, which we just heard earlier, where the Lord is my shepherd. Verse 4 of that, of that psalm, we hear him talk about the rod and the staff of the shepherd. Now, the rod and the staff are probably not two separate objects. You know, we've got a, a traveling migrant shepherd that would be pretty cumbersome to have to have an object in each hand or to try to bundle them uh, both up in one hand. The rod and the staff are likely uh, just two synonyms for the same object or perhaps even two parts of this one object, that the rod and the staff might be the opposite ends. One's used as a, as a weapon to defend against predators, and one would be used as some sort of guardrail to direct the sheep. Whatever the rod and the staff look like, the psalmist tells them, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The staff is for the good of the sheep. When Moses goes back to Egypt then, he leaves his life in Midian behind, including the sheep and all of his shepherding days. But he is told by God when he goes, make sure you take your shepherd's staff with you. Why? There are three reasons. Uh, at least here, that I think the staff is important. So we'll look at those three reasons here and then talk about what this means for the Christian. So the three reasons here why the staff is important for Moses in Egypt. The first is that the staff is a marker of identity. The staff is a marker of identity. The Lord does not say to Moses, take a staff with you. He doesn't say take any staff with you. He says, if you look close, take this staff. Take your own staff, the one that is now in your hand. Take that staff with you. Have you ever gone hiking or, or just on, on, a, on a long walk, especially as a kid, you know, I still do this as an adult. I don't know what that says about me, but, you know, at the beginning, you're kind of walking along and you, and you find a good stick, you know, a nice big one that you can use to poke at stuff and to help you as you go along. Uh, this is different than that. Very different. When we're hiking in that sense, we tend to pick up a stick and then at the end of the hike, we might toss it back into the woods at the end. But here in this culture for Moses, the staff would be yours for a very long time. 
People would even know which staff is yours. So to illustrate this, there's a very messy, messy scene in uh, Genesis chapter 38. I won't read it because it's long and because, well, it's windy up here. Uh, But you can read the whole thing on your own if you want. Let me summarize. In Genesis chapter 38, Judah, uh, who is one of the men of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah has a son who dies. And, and the man's wife, Tamar, is now a widow. And so by law, Judah is now supposed to take care of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, but he doesn't. And so out of this lack of care, Tamar comes up with a plan. She disguises uh, herself, and she tricks Judah into sleeping with her for the price of a goat. I guess that's the going rate of the day. I don't know. I don't want to make light of this. It's a serious uh, thing here. Uh, but uh, this goat, after their uh, encounter, uh, Judah says, I will bring you the goat. Uh, but as collateral, until he can return with the goat, Judah gives Tamar a couple of his possessions, one of which is his staff. And so when Judah comes back now with the goat to pay her, Tamar is gone. Months later, however, Tamar turns back up, and she's pregnant. Here now is this widow who is unmarried and with child. And she is about to be punished. So within their culture, this is immorality worthy of punishment. But before, before she receives the punishment, she says, wait a minute. I can show you who the father is. It's the owner of these. And she holds up, among a few other things, Judah's staff. And Judah is clearly shown to be the dad. Now the point of this, the reason why I share it, is because a staff could be used as a person's unique identifier. Uh, One scholar who wrote about these things compared uh, the staff in these cultures to their passport sort of like their, their, their driver's license. So with your staff, you would often carve your, your name or some sort of marker that, I would, that would identify you on it, sort of like a cattle brand that's unique to you on this staff. So if you found a person's staff, you would know exactly whose it is. So we see in this staff, this is the property of Moses. And... Moses is God's chosen one. When God sends a mission to free his people Israel from slavery, God does not pass out a sign-up sheet. He does not call for volunteers here. It's not just whoever he can scrape together to get to do his work. He calls specifically. Here he says, I want you, Moses, to go. In the Old Testament language, it's you are the one who is anointed for this purpose. The staff has your name on it. The staff is a marker of identity. That's the first Here's the second thing we see in this staff. The staff is a marker of 
power. The staff is a marker of power. If you look again in verse 17, the Lord says, Take your staff, take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Now we know, of course, the Lord does not need a staff in order to do miraculous things. Uh, this is not uh, some sort of, you know, magic wand that if uh, he doesn't have the wand, the magic's not going to work without it. The Lord could just, you know, poof the signs and wonders into effect with just a word or a thought. He could do that. But if we follow the Exodus story, as we are doing, we will soon see that the Lord chooses to make this staff an instrument of his power. So just as general summary of the things we're about to see in this, the first sign to Pharaoh when he throws down the staff and it turns into a snake, the staff itself becomes a sign that eats up the other magician's staffs. When we get to the plagues, the staff is used specifically in at least half of the plagues. Either it is struck on something, strike the Nile to turn it to blood, or strike the dust to turn them to gnats, or it's just stretched out, in which frogs will come, and hail will come, and locusts will come. And then after the plagues are done and they leave Egypt, Moses then is told to stretch out the staff to divide the Red Sea so that the people can cross on the dry land. Then when they're in the parched wilderness and they don't have water, Moses is told to strike a rock with his staff so that water would pour out. The Lord does amazing works of power with this particular staff. But my favorite one, and I will read this just because... I can't help uh, but, but read it. It's just a few verses here. Is when uh, Moses and the people are facing the army Amalek. This is in Exodus chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 8. Listen for the staff here. Verse 8, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men who will go out and fight with Amalek. And tomorrow... I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on each side and the other on the other side. And so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Mm. I love this for a number of reasons, one of which is because Moses, we see here, gets tired. We can see Moses' own powerlessness. He needs help even to just hold up this stick. But the point of all of this is that the staff is to be here a visible mark of God's power, that you can see it. 
that you can look at it with your own eyes. This staff would leave no doubt in the minds of the people so that they would not think that their victories were an accident. They're not just a coincidence. These are just happening because they're in the right place at the right time. They may not be able to see God, but they can see the staff that he has appointed. So they would come to learn that whenever they would see that staff stretched out, they were about to see the power of God Almighty at work. The staff is a marker of power. That's the second. Third, final. Third thing we see about the staff here is that it is a marker of authority. A marker of authority. If you look closely at the text, the staff is not called Moses' staff. Although it is his staff. It's got his name on it. <laughs> but at the end of our text, the four, you know, four verses in, in verse 20, at the end of it, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. It's called here the staff of God. The staff is ultimately God's, and he decides, he has the authority to decide how it is to be used. So the staff does not have power within itself. The staff is not magic. You know, it doesn't have some sort of phoenix feather in its core that makes it do wondrous things. And, it, and if someone found the staff on the ground, or if even today, if we happen to dig up Moses' staff in some archaeological dig, it's not like you could just pick it up and stretch it out and make a plague. The staff is completely under God's authority to work wonders. So if we try to use the staff under our own authority, it's a violation and a serious one. Even Moses, the physical owner of the staff, could misuse the staff if he goes against God's authority. And we actually see that happen. Later on, uh, in Numbers chapter 20, I won't read it, but I'll summarize here. After the people have now been brought out of Egypt, now, they're now wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years because they did not trust God. They, they run out of water again. And this time, the Lord tells Moses, Moses, speak to the rock. Tell this rock to give you water, and it will. But instead, Moses takes his staff and strikes the rock. Twice, actually, because we assume the first time it didn't work. And I have to wonder in this moment, what is on Moses' mind? We don't know, but we could maybe guess. What is on his mind when he's told, speak to the rock, but instead he hits it with the staff? Perhaps he's thinking, you know, <laughs> this worked this way before. Surely it's going to work this way again. Or maybe Moses had just gotten used to wielding the power of this stick. 
Maybe he thought the staff would work on its own. Or perhaps he had come to trust in the staff more than to trust in God. Whatever the case, the Lord does give the people water out of the rock uh, because he is merciful. But the Lord also confronts Moses for his disobedience here, for his lack of trust here. And this event, when Moses strikes the rock with his staff instead of speaking to it, this event is the reason which Moses is not allowed by God to enter the promised land. Moses is saved, and yet he misses a part of the Lord's blessing. The staff here is a marker of identity and power, but it also bears the label, use only as directed. This staff is a mark of God's authority. So now what does this mean here? What does this mean for us now as Christians? If we look at what the Lord does here with the staff, we'll see that it matters very much to God that his people are freed from oppression. So it's, it's good for them to celebrate that freedom. You know, we are free, uh, hallelujah. But on its own, that freedom is not enough. We can see here that it matters just as much, if not more, to the Lord how his people are freed from oppression. That it matters to him the means of his salvation. So God does not just say to Moses, go to Egypt, I'll go with you, but you figure it out. No, he says, go and take your staff and watch what I'm going to do with it. So then, once the Israelites had exited their slavery and now are safely opposite the Red Sea, every time then, they would look at Moses and see him leaning on this staff. This would be a tangible reminder, not only that they are free, but how God freed them, how God had saved them. It would be a reminder of the identity, the power, the authority, not just of Moses or of the staff, but the identity, power, and authority of their God. And that would be a source of them, of rest, joy, of hope. The Christian has the great benefit of looking backward and seeing these things and even seeing them in a much larger scope. Because a similar thing happens for us here when we look at the cross. It matters very much that we are free. 
that the chains of sin and death are broken for the Christian, that they are not our master anymore. We should celebrate that. We are free from these things. But this is also pointing us to something greater than just that. It is more than just get saved. It matters how we are saved. The cross then is a visible marker of the identity, the power, the authority of our Lord Jesus. And we are free because he has freed us. He then is our joy, our peace, our hope. This pointer then will lead us to praise him forever. Would you pray with me? Ah, Lord, would you make this staff that is in Moses' hand a pointer to you? Help us to see just a little more this morning the identity and power and authority that you really have. Help us to find our comfort here. Help us to trust you and to follow you and to praise you. You're a good God and we do give you praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.